Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Dr. Chris Kiefer from Canadians for Nuclear Energy wants to know why our federal government is so opposed to the nuclear energy option. Kevin Estrada from the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association will talk about some incredible volunteer work going on on Sumas Prairie this weekend. And the founder of the BC Animal Food Bank, Nicole Wilkes, will give us some ideas about helping the critters displaced by the storms. So, let's get started. A real pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. He is Dr. Chris Kiefer, president of Doctors for Nuclear Energy. He uh, actually went to, all the way to Glasgow, Scotland recently to COP26 to uh, face-to-face confront the Minister of the Environment of Canada and challenge him on the government of Canada's nuclear position. Dr. Chris Kiefer joins us today from the hometown of Avril Levine. He's in Napanee, Ontario. Dr. Kiefer, Dr. Chris, good morning and welcome, sir. Surely, thanks so much for having me. Your, your knowledge of Ontario geography is pretty impressive. Well, I, I'm an Etobicoke guy, sir. Lived in Belleville and Peterborough. Been around the block a few times. Great to have you with us, Dr. Chris. Sir, why did you go to, to, uh, to Glasgow to confront Gilbo, to, to, to cause that confrontation and galvanize the conversation, focus things a little bit? Was that the mission statement? No, actually, it was a bit of an accident. I, I only heard about Mr. Gilbo's press conference about half an hour before it happened. Um, I went to Glasgow uh, with a large delegation of about 60 young people, all volunteers, uh, to try and put nuclear energy where it belongs on the climate agenda. You know, out of the eight large economies that have achieved uh, the holy grail of deep decarbonization, they've either done it because they're blessed with abundant hydro, and, you know, BC would be an example sure. of that. Um, alongside uh, Norway, Quebec, Manitoba, for instance. But the, the, the countries and the provinces that have achieved it without have done it with nuclear energy. Um, so it's just a taboo subject that we felt really needs to get on the uh, the minds of policymakers at this crucial time. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kiefer, you, you're, you're speaking to a fan of nuclear energy here, sir. I've been to France, I've been to California, I've been to many jurisdictions around the world that rely quite heavily on nuclear energy. So you're talking to a sympathetic ear, but I'm very curious as to what your response is, Dr. Chris, because I don't have one. When someone says, okay, so great, you're a big fan of nuclear, so what are you going to do with all that waste? I don't have a snappy, glib response that says, so there. What's your response? Yeah, I, I do. So I'll, I'll share it with you. I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, first of all, when they say all that nuclear waste, it's an interesting question. I mean, how much are they talking about? In the 60 years of the Canadian nuclear uh, industry, we've produced um, a sufficient quality of, of high-level nuclear waste to fill one hockey rink to the height of one telephone pole. You know, this uh, fuel, uranium, is incredibly energy dense, uh, two to three million times more than coal, a million times more than petroleum. And so very little goes in and very little comes out. Again, in the history of civilian nuclear energy, not just in Canada, but around the world, there's not been a single fatality associated with stored civilian nuclear waste. So it's something that we know very well how to contain, how to deal with. Unshielded, it's dangerous. But radiation is one of the things that we understand best in the world. It's one of the things we've studied most in the world. So until now, we've contained it. We know how to, um, you know, finding a permanent solution for it. We have several. I would suggest that that's not quite as urgent as solving climate change. But let me give you a couple of those solutions. Okay. You know, people call it nuclear waste. Um, A lot of other people call it partially spent nuclear fuel. 
So about only about 5% of the energy in that uranium is extracted through our current, uh, our current nuclear technology. And there is already existing technology in Russia that can take that remaining um, you know, spent fuel and get the other 90% of the uh, energy out of it. So really it's an, a resource for future generations. But if you do want to dispose of it permanently, we have something called Deep Geologic Repository. Right. Finland's uh, working on one right now. And this is really interesting because, you know, we understand geology very well as well. Um, and the rock formation that we're looking at putting this nuclear waste in, um, you know, the only mechanism for that waste to get it and harm someone is it for, for water to get in and dissolve it and carry it somehow to the biosphere. Well, the rock formation that we're going to put it in, it takes a million years for water to move one meter. So when I found out that fact, um, you know, that just blew me away and really gave me confidence that humans are brilliant. We're great problem solvers and engineers, and we, we can deal with this so-called problem. Yeah, and we, of course, do inhabit the second largest country on planet Earth. And in this enormous landmass, Dr. Kiefer, surely to goodness, there's a few spots where we could find a deep enough place to put uh, those uh, radioactive bits of nuclear waste. Yeah, if, if we choose not to hold them near the surface so that we can use them in this future generation of reactors, which is around the corner, absolutely. It's, it's more than possible. You know, it's very interesting, you know, people's optimism and pessimism about technologies, right? When I'm asked about a storage problem where nuclear waste, what I say is that, you know, the, the real storage problem and the one that we should probably be a little bit more pessimistic about, if you understand anything about energy and the scale of what's required, this idea that we can store electricity from intermittent wind and solar mm. for the days, weeks, potentially seasons, um, in order to use it when it's required to keep an ultra-reliable grid that can keep my hospital lights on and my ventilators running, right. um, that, is, that is the storage problem. So, Dr. Chris, the, as I understand it, the government of Canada is, is all in, all in, all the chips on the table have been pushed to the center on wind and solar. But we all, I think rational people also understand the unreliability of of wind and solar as a as a, a permanent source of 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 energy so what if if nuclear isn't going to be the backup the go-to when there's no wind and it's dark or cloudy um if 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 they're not favoring nuclear and they clearly do not what's their what's their alternative option well, you know, I just came back from the promised land of, of wind and solar technology from Germany. After Glasgow, I went to Berlin to actually join. That's uh, right. We heard you last weekend with Roy Green from Berlin, actually. And thank you for doing this again this week. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. You know, and uh, they've spent 500 billion euros on their, what they call their energy venda, their energy transition or turnaround. And they spent that almost all on wind and solar. When I was there, it was cloudy and windless. Right. And and you can look at the profile of what's on the grid. You can go to an app called Electricity Map and look around the world at real-world data that's updated every five minutes. In any case, Germany was purely using coal, gas, and biomass. So, so that's their backup. In the, me- the media will breathlessly talk about the odd day in the year when Germany is 100% powered by renewable energy. Doesn't happen very often. Doesn't, doesn't happen for very long. Right. But when I was there, quite the opposite. 100% powered by, by coal, gas, and biomass. And what that means is that Germany has two parallel electricity systems, each capable of meeting peak demand. So they're an incredibly rich country. They could afford to sort of virtue signal and build up this wind and solar, but they have not been able to retire their existing fossil fuels fleet. Right. So, so wind and solar, un- unfortunately, despite all of the marketing, are not effective deep decarbonization tools. 
they're able to spare some fuel, but you better have that capacity. You better not shut down your coal plants or your gas plants because when the weather doesn't cooperate, your grid's going to crash if you don't have something solid to back it up. Uh, talking to Dr. Chris Kiefer, joining us from the Toronto area in Ontario. Dr. Kiefer is the founder of Doctors for Nuclear Power. And uh, Dr. Kiefer went to Glasgow, Scotland a couple of weeks ago uh, as part of the COP26 and uh, spoke with the Canadian Energy Minister, the Environment Minister, the new one, Stephen Gilbo, about his concerns for nuclear uh, energy and why uh, the government of Canada, specifically Dr. Dr. Chris, the Minister of the Environment, Mr. Gilbo, is very personally opposed to nuclear power. Uh, does he have enough clout in the current government in this very, uh, very strong, very high-profile portfolio? Does he have the power to dictate government policy vis-a-vis nuclear by himself? Well, you know, the federal government overall has had a very lukewarm approach to nuclear energy. Um, Seamus O'Regan, the former natural resource minister, was quite bullish. He stated correctly that there's no path to net zero without nuclear. Right. But the statements coming from Trudeau, for instance, when he's asked about nuclear energy, he pivots and says, we're investing in solar energy, we're investing in wind energy, and nuclear energy kind of sort of maybe should be on the table. We shouldn't take anything off the table. But you know, the federal government has uh, given out small um, support um, in the form of uh, some money to some advanced nuclear companies from the, from the Strategic Innovation Fund. Uh, but overall, they've been, they've been very weak. Um, so how much influence does he have? I mean, all the ministers together, um, you know, do, do have an impact. And I'd say the new uh, Minister of Natural Resources, the replacement for O'Regan, is also quite lukewarm. Um, so I'm I'm incredibly concerned. I think it sends a very dangerous signal that uh, Trudeau would appoint this man. Interesting, because it's I, I suppose it seems to run. And given that Gil, Gilbo, Stephen Gilbo, my goodness, the Montreal Gazette uh, n- nicknamed him Montreal's Canada's Green Jesus back in the days when he was <laughs> when he was climbing the CN Tower and performing all sorts of right. Greenpeace right. stunts. So it's the same guy. But you know, here we have the IPC uh, C, uh, the the international group that. That's all of these standards for uh, decarbonization, and they offer several pathways, one of which is nuclear. So if the IPCC is behind this, what's the problem with the government of Canada, Dr. Chris? Well, let me correct you there, because it's actually all four of the principal decarbonization pathways of the IPCC call for an increase in nuclear energy relative to today's levels. There's a degrowth pathway, which, let's face it, is economically and politically um, not feasible, which says we should keep it about the same. And then the increases range from 150 to 500 percent increase right. in nuclear energy. That's right. That's, that's, science, that's scientific consensus. Now, I mean, let's bring it back a little bit to Gilbo in the context of my, you know, I'll call it a bit of an ambush interview with him. Mm-hmm. He was speaking. He was speaking at a session entitled uh, "Powering Through the Coal Phaseout with a Just Transition." for workers, right? And this is a man who has called for the shutdown of all of Canada's nuclear, yes, uh, but also opposed nuclear energy in Ontario. Now, the greatest greenhouse gas reduction in North American history was the Ontario coal phase. Our grid was 25% coal. We used nuclear energy. 90% of the energy for the, for the phase-out of coal came from nuclear energy. This was incredibly significant. It is most of the emissions reductions that Canada as a nation has achieved uh, from peaking in, its two, in 2005. You know, and if, if, we were to, if we were to shut down all nuclear, as Mr. Gilbo, the supposed green Jesus, has called for, it would be like adding the emission equivalent of another tar sands to Canada. 
So, you know, you really can't underestimate the, the power of nuclear energy, you know, what an effective decarbonization tool it is. And it's to me, it's just, it's shocking. I know that nuclear energy has been a taboo subject, and unfortunately, the Canadian public is not well educated on it. There's actually a ban in your province on building nuclear energy. Yes. But it is, it is the keystone technology of, of an energy transition, which let's face it, looking at the disaster that's just occurred in BC, we need to be, we need to be making some serious changes here, but we need to do changes that are going to offer a just transition for Canada's workers. And nuclear offers that. I'm happy to explain why, but I, I don't want to run on too long. No, no, sure. but, and, and I'll get you to explain how, how that can happen. But I guess what, what most of us, and I think you're right to point out, Dr. Kiefer, that a lot of Canadians simply aren't up to speed on this file. And it's something, especially as we as a country become more and more aware of climate change and where we fit into the big picture and how we can to do, to do our bit. Uh, one of the things that w- we don't understand is why why this is so dreadfully unfashionable with the government of Canada? I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's an interesting question for me. I think because the Canadian public is, is not well educated, um, you know, and, and both the sort of center and left parties, the liberals and the NDP, you know, their base is split on this question. And, you know, I would say there's a bit of a windsock phenomena with the Liberal Party of Canada. I try not to be partisan, and I do say that, you know, the best climate solutions belong in every party, but mm. I have to be critical of our, of our current government. I think that's, that's fair. Um, and they're, you know, they, they probably form a lot of their policy around focus groups. And what's needed right now is an aspirational politics, one that is based in evidence. And the evidence clearly shows that if you want to achieve deep decarbonization and a just transition for Canadian workers, nuclear energy is the way to go. Okay, well, let's uh, let's talk about the fact that we're dealing with yet another minority government after the election about nothing that changed nothing. Uh, so now they're all about vote for us again pretty soon. So now they want to, in the energy department, they want to do Trudeau's word, deliverables that will show up as votable deliverables within a two-year period. Uh, nuclear is not going to make that happen, but they can do stuff with wind and solar that, again, looks like they're doing something. Well, I mean, again, if you look at my own province, um, you know, we're 61% powered by nuclear. Um, In the early 2000s, we did something called the Green Energy Act, which was modeled actually on Germany, which before your break, I was I was talking about what a what a failure that has been at achieving deep decarbonization. And that historic investment in wind and solar um, had had almost no return on investment in terms of decarbonization. And in fact, the tens of billions of dollars we spent on this wind and solar um, happened instead of refurbishing one of our large nuclear plants, which is uh, named Pickering. Mm-hmm. And when Pickering goes offline, it's going to raise Canada's national emissions by 1%, which is insane. And, and you know, that is, the, that is the actual response to making the wrong investment. We, we need to think in an evidence-based fashion about the technologies. We have enough evidence to understand what works and what does not. And my fear is that the Trudeau government is going to essentially do a National Green Energy Act um, because it looks good. It's popular. People love solar panels and wind turbines. Mm. But we, ha- we have to follow the evidence. That is so essential. Or we're going we're gonna to be dragging our heels even more and doing something that's ineffective, that's costly, and that's bad for the Canadian economy. Where do you think uh, solar panels are made? They're made in China with, with cheap, perhaps forced labor from Uyghurs, uh, the Uyghur people who are you know, being enslaved in Western China, mm. um, as, as well as a very cheap coal-fired grid. You know, where are the turbines being made? 
the steel for the towers is being rolled out in Vietnamese factories. And, you know, the IP in terms of the complex machinery and the head of the turbine is uh, all owned by Germany and Denmark. So we import the stuff, we slap it up every 20 years, and then we take it down because it doesn't last very long. Right. And the jobs are as intermittent as the energy they produce. Uh, Dr. Kiefer, the Minister of the Environment, Mr. Gilbo, said, uh, partly in response to your challenge uh, about his nuclear position, basically he fell back to, well, you know, we're going to let the market decide. How likely is that? Well, this is a reference to this idea that, you know, wind and solar are, are cheaper than anything else. Um, but they don't, they don't supply the same services as what we're trying to replace in terms of fossil fuels. Again, um, because of that intermittency. And this idea that government doesn't intervene in the energy system is ridiculous. Sure. I mean, energy is, the, energy is the secret ingredient in everything. You know, so um, let's just take a few examples. They put uh, $4.5 billion into buying a pipeline. They put $5.2 billion into, uh, you know, bailing out the Muskrat Falls. They own 10% of the Hibernia oil field. So don't tell me that the government has no role in regulating and being involved in setting energy policy. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we leave it to the market, the market would just burn more coal and gas, right? So clearly we're intervening in the market. And it's just so disingenuous to, to sort of say that, well, wind and solar are cheap. Well, they're not cheap at nighttime, and they're not cheap when the wind doesn't blow. You could spend all the money in the world. At nighttime, you're not getting any solar energy. Dr. Kiefer, as, uh, as Canadians try to get themselves up to speed and educate themselves better on this file, especially being, again, uh, trying hard to be environmentally aware as all the rest of it, what would you recommend as a good website to our listeners right now this morning to go to to perhaps get a kind of a primer on what this is all about? Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned I'm the president of Doctors for Nuclear Energy, and that is true, but I'm also the, uh, well, the director. I'm the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and we have a great website, www.c4ne.ca, um, where you can learn some of these facts. And you can actually, you know, participate in some campaigns. And if you sign up to our email list, we'll get you more information and we can get you involved in, in advocating for this. And, you know, it is strange that I am an advocate for nuclear energy, that I spend a lot of my time doing this. But it's because of a failure of the sector to speak for itself and because it's because it's such a misunderstood technology. You know, I am not a shill for the industry. I am a volunteer. I do this purely on my own time. You know, in terms of my record as an activist and other issues, I'm, you know, I'm staff physician at the Canadian Center for Victims of Torture. You know, I started the first seasonal agricultural migrant worker clinic. You know, I have a record of, of doing other activities. And this is just, you know, my application of the emergency department idea of triage, trying to take my internal resources and address the biggest problems of our time. Right. And that's what's led me to do this. So, I mean, just to give your listeners some context uh, about who I am and my motivation. All right, Dr. Chris Kiefer, thank you so much for this. By the way, the website again, friends, in case you missed it, because it's really early. There are two versions of this. It's C4NE, the letter C, the number 4NE.ca. Or if you prefer long form, it's CanForNuclearEnergy.org. Either way, it's a terrific website. The boss is our guest, Dr. Chris Kiefer. Joined on the line by Kevin Estrada, who is the director of the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association. Mr. Estrada, Kevin, good morning. 
Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us, Kevin. You, I, I, We've caught you just as you and several of your uh, association members are back in the boats and heading back out to do more rescue work. Uh, as, uh, before we get you to tell us about the kind of work that you've been doing, Kevin, and, and, and congratulations and many, many thanks from all of us for the work that you're doing. But the problem, as I understand it, today to get the work continuing, Kevin, it's about gas. What's the fuel status today? Yeah, well, we, uh, well, first of all, thanks for having, uh, having us on just to sort of get the awareness out on what's going on. Um, the, the, the fuel situation, uh, had been getting a little bit better over the last 24 hours, uh, sorry, last say 36 hours. And then, uh, the province obviously announced yesterday that, uh, they're going to restrict fuel. So now we're going to have to, um, maybe, uh, argue a little bit or, or plead our case that we're essential to uh, to be able to get more fuel if we can find it uh, over on this side, the Chilliwack side. So, um, yeah, we've had we've had a, a tremendous uh, outpouring of, of uh, you know residents in the area uh, bringing us fuel and keeping the boats going. And so it's uh, it's been pretty heartwarming to uh, to see everybody come out and help. Well, if you're going to argue your case, Kevin, I would think that you, you you got a pretty strong argument given that the minister yesterday in his explanation of these limitations on fuel for each and every one of us is because uh, we need fuel available to people doing essential emergency work. Now let's talk about the essential emergency work that you and the other members of the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association have been up to the past few days not a lot of guiding of fishermen going on kevin but a lot of time in the boats where are you this morning by the way uh i'm in uh, just at the bottom of Ryder lake uh in chilliwack here and i'm just going to be heading out with uh, four other boats uh in the sumas flats we've got a reports of a lot of people having still having animals in their houses um medications that they're needing uh yeah it, it's sort of a wide range of of calls that we're getting um and you know that's you bring up a good point about the essential that's uh yesterday transport canada shut down the river Mm -hmm. and so we you know we've uh you know again you have to i think the best part here is to have people deemed essential or have uh, the government reach out to organizations so that we have something uh, on hand or documented that we can we can show people because there are roadblocks there are people that uh you know, for instance, where we're going to be going today, you know, there's roadblocks up. If you don't have uh, Yarrow on your driver's license, then you're not getting in the area. Right. right? And so it, it just confuses things a little bit. But uh, hopefully people are, are willing to, you know, sort of be okay with, you know, us coming in their communities and helping. And so far they have been uh, in a big way. Kevin, uh, um, how many people are you finding in a lot of these rescue missions that you're talking about, including the one you're about to undertake in the next very few minutes? How many of them are, are involving people versus critters? Because we understand that there are some people who have held out and remained at home despite the evacuation orders. Have you bailed out literally people from their homes in the past few days? Uh, we haven't done people from their homes. We did two days ago. We, we evacuated 100 people out of Hope. Um, and brought them downriver from uh, everywhere from uh, to Chilliwack to all the way to Mission and also Kilby, which where they were able to trans- get transported around on the road. Um, but down in the Sumas Flats, we haven't done uh, uh, any people as of yet. Um, it's just been also checking on on homes, making sure that there's you know somebody not needing to get rescued out of there. And 
and just doing whatever we can. A lot of it's come on social media. Um, everybody knows that we're out there and, you know, obviously the, uh, there's some boats from search and rescue and, and RCMP, but they don't have a fleet like we do. And so it, it, it seems, and it feels like, uh, we're getting a brunt of the, of the calls for, for help where needed. And uh, are you communicating with each other out on the water via cell phone or radio? Uh, there, obviously, there's a network in place because you're doing really good, concentrated work, Kevin. Yeah, so what we did was uh, we set up two command centers, basically, uh, myself here in Chilliwack and Dean Work up uh, in Yale area. And then we have a group chat with everybody um, uh, on their phones so that we can coordinate who's going where and where we need boats and then where we need fuel. Uh, from there, we've been messaging out on social media if we need fuel and where it needs to be going, and then uh, residents have been able to um, to help out in that way. Um, and then from there, each night we have a debrief, and then obviously each morning we're sending out who's going where, so we're not duplicating things. So um, it's been you know it's been organized chaos, but it's been a uh, it, it seems like it's been a well-oiled machine, and um, and it's been been going pretty well and and you know there's even local companies that have stepped up right we did uh we did five jet boats the other night uh, uh up to first nations communities and that was uh, uh paid for by telus and so it's just extraordinary seeing um you know the community come together like this but it, is, it has been i mean uh, we've we've seen it uh, so many times in british columbia and oh my gosh what a year we've had holy cow kevin talk about examples we have a super abundance of examples of British Columbians coming to stand up for each other to do the right thing. And by the way, on the on the matter of supplying fuel to volunteer boats, uh, Mike Farnworth is quoted in the Vancouver Sun as saying that's certainly something we would be able to look at. Another example of BC people just doing the right thing and showing up. How many boats will you and your organization today, Kevin, have on the water? Um, we've got anywhere from 12 to 15 a day jet boats running. So uh, we are going through quite a bit of fuel. Um, uh, we are, uh, you know, we just started to taking in donations to help cover for this. I mean, we'll deal with, with the financial cost of it later, but we are not-for-profit, right? And, right. And and a lot of these guys have, you know, not a lot of them, but some of them have lost their businesses over the last couple of years. Yes. We've been hit really hard in our, our industry. and. And the unfortunate part is is fishing in general is a lot of sole proprietorships, right? And they got, you know, we got overlooked during this, uh, you know, the help over the last couple of years with COVID, right? And funding, you know, we've argued and tried to help with, uh, you know, try to bring up our cause mm-hmm. to the government to get help. And it seems like there's a lot of businesses helped out except for fishing, which is a big, big business in British Columbia in tourism, right? It's not just about the end product of the person coming fishing it's the hotels it's the flights it's the restaurants the gas the no coffee. question and so you know it's uh you know maybe this will bring a little bit of attention and maybe we'll be able to get also some funding down the road just to keep those businesses alive that were hurt so bad over the last couple of years so you know it's a lot of good can come of this and a lot of awareness to you know not only what we're doing now but as an organization uh, what we have done for, for 23 years. Kevin, you couldn't present your case to the government of the people of British Columbia any more convincingly than what you're doing right now. Our hats off to you and all the members of the Fraser Valley Angling Guides Association this morning, sir. Please keep up the good work with our thanks. I appreciate you having me on, and thanks for the uh, the airtime and getting the awareness out there.
We're just taking assessment of the week that was, and oh my gosh, we're, we're only about halfway through trying to sort it all out. Here to help us a little bit more down the road is Nicole Wilkes, the founder of the BC Animal Food Bank, which was founded in Kelowna a couple of years ago. Nicole joins us this morning from Medicine Hat, Alberta. Nicole, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So what uh, what takes you to, to a medicine hat? Uh, are you, I, I, because it's about food resources for animals. And here in BC, where we're uh, up until this morning, where Vancouver has literally been cut off from the rest of the province, I'm not surprised to see that you're moving to other sources for bringing in food, correct? Yeah, it's been crazy, like a thousand times worse than the fires, and I never thought I would be able to say that. But uh, my husband's work brought us out to Medicine Hat, and so we run branches all across Canada. Right. And so this isn't really different for me, but um, I am from Kelowna, so very invested in the Okanagan and BC Food Bank programs. Well, of course, and you know, Princeton would be, I guess, the closest uh, community to Kelowna that is in real distress this morning. But, uh, you know, we, we had a chat with, uh, with the folks from the Fraser Valley uh, Angling, uh, guides Association. Kevin Estrada was on us. There are 15 people in boats out there in the Fraser Valley. Ken, they were just about to shove off, actually, before uh, Kevin took a moment to join us and have a chat. 15 members of the, the Angling Guides and their boats are out today on the waters of Sumas Prairie, and they're rescuing animals, Nicole, and uh, you know just trying to, to, to get them to high ground, literally. Incredible community efforts going on. It really is, and it's a lot of the grassroots organizations that come together in times of crisis is, is what we've learned. We, we make the biggest impact by working together, um, and, and that's what we see. We work with food banks all over Canada, pet food banks, um, and with the, I mean, we have evacuees coming into Kelowna, Penticton, from sure. Princeton, and from Merritt. We also help a pet food bank in uh, Kamloops, and they've got a lot of the merit evacuees too, and so it really is a group effort, uh, and the small organizations organizations that can work together and pivot really quickly based on what we see and what we learn and, and what we know for need. And interestingly enough, I'm about to call Kevin after this call to see what we can do to supply him food. Oh, that's great. They need food and they need gas too, although maybe, oh, the, awesome. m- maybe the province is going to help out on that. We'll get, now we've got limitations and so on, but they are really, they've, re- they've introduced limitations in in order to have some fuel supply available to people doing important, essential emergency work. And what Kevin and his people are doing on the waters of Sumas Prairie this morning is the definition of emergency work. So let's hope the province steps up with a few drops of gas for those guys. Nicole, how do, how do people help uh, provide, uh, for example, the Red Cross is, is typically in an event like this, fires, floods, etc. When, when Canadians look to, to, to how we can help, the Red Cross says, please come Come here, and and we would much prefer that you donate cash rather than goods, because we can turn that cash into much more food than you ever could, simply because of our ability to buy in volume. It does the same apply to the BC Animal Food Bank, Nicole? Normally, no. Normally, we ask people to supply food um, and and not supply cash. In this instance, because of the supply chain issues, mm-hmm. we are asking for both because we're having to, to truck in. I think we have, I managed to get like 5,000 pounds of food moving from Alberta next week into the Okanagan because okay. we, our cupboards are bare. Uh, and so for us to be able to do that, there is no supply to purchase from in the Okanagan because if we do that, then regular people who need food for their pets are going to be struggling. So 
Um, yeah, so the, the easiest way if you're supporting pets of the Okanagan right now is through cash. In the Lower Mainland, though, um, I, and I guess one of the things that's important to note is that gar- pet Pets themselves are not usually considered in disaster relief efforts. True. And so when people show up at the emergency services centers, a lot of them are shocked to find that unless you're working with an organization like Alert, which is the Animal Lifeline Emergency Response um, team, and us, that there's not a lot of support for them for their pets. Right. And so, yeah, so we are a segment, um, a very specialized segment of organizations that is filling a gap that the provincial and federal government don't provision for. Okay, so um, given the fact, and we, we're, we're keenly aware of that, but fortunately, of course, we're, we're kind of uh, inclined to support the animals in our lives and of our neighbors as well. And because of that kindness in our hearts, uh, we're, we're, we're looking for ways to fill that gap, Nicole, and that's why you're on the radio with us this morning, uh, just to, to give people an idea of what and how we can contribute. Absolutely. So you can visit our website at animalfeedbank.org. You can donate financially there, but we also have a drop-off location map. And so we're adding drop-off locations throughout the Fraser Valley right now. We have uh, Tailblazers in Abbotsford as one. You can also call in a gift card to them. Um, and then we'll use that to collect and deploy supplies. And one of the beautiful things is that uh, animal lovers unite very quickly. And so we already have a team of volunteers on the ground to be able to deploy those donations wherever we see the need. And we also have a team on the ground right now exploring where that need exists. Sure. So I would imagine within the next couple hours we'll be deploying food to Kevin. And that's because we have such an amazing group of volunteers. Absolutely. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, the, you know, the last thing we want to indicate to any degree at all, Nicole, is the sense of competition between, for example, the Animal Food Bank and another service organization like the SPCA. This is not a time for any rivalry whatsoever. So talk to us about the cooperation that exists between your organizations. It's amazing. And one of the founding principles on uh, for our organization is collaboration. And we really see it spring into action in, in situations like this because we work so closely with so many organizations where we pool our resources as mm-hmm. one group of resources and just deploy whatever we need to based on whatever we have. So we've got Four Paws Food Bank. We've got Vetster, which is a telehealth um, program, a vetting program that has stepped up and provided emergency, not emergency, I guess, telehealth vetting for evacuees of pets. Um, we've got Culligan Water who's donated to us. We've got the Good Hall in Vancouver who's donating food. Um, there's so many of us that just We've got Parachute for Pets, which is in Calgary. It's the Pet Food Bank in Calgary. She sent two pallets of food to us this week. Good. Yeah, it really is how do we help, um, and that does allow us to pivot very quickly and a lot of times a lot faster than the government. You know, there's a great story out of Princeton this week, Nicole, and I'm sure you saw it. There was a truckload of uh, small animals, dogs, coming down from, I believe, either Alberta or up north on their way to Vancouver to be let out for adoption. And, of course, the, the floods came along, and here's this vehicle with 70 animals, 73 animals, I believe, in it. Uh, stranded and all of a sudden the, the word goes out you know there's a there's a there's a, va- a truck load of creatures in our community very much in need of foster assistance and within a matter of a couple of hours 71 pets were fostered out just like that just to, almost as fast as you can blink that's pretty amazing 
It is, and we actually fed them. <laughs> so we worked with Alert, which is the Animal Lifeline Emergency Response Team. They were the ones who set up all the fostering, mm-hmm. and we we supplied the food. So we had food deployed within a couple of hours so, out to those animals. Yeah, they were actually coming from Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, okay. That's where I knew it was from, from out of province. Yeah, so, my, my hometown. <laughs> uh, okay, so what is the distribution point then? Do you have something in Kelowna, uh, kind of a warehouse facility for the interior of the province? We do. We actually have a sea can located. We work really closely with dog control in Kelowna. Um, and so we have a sea can located on their property donated to us by Secure Right. And all of our donations go into that. It's accessible to our volunteers. And then our volunteers deploy from there based on what we need and where we need it to go. So it's a pretty low overhead system um, that allows instantaneous access by whoever can get to it to get to the get the supplies to wherever they need to go. Indeed. And let's put the shoe on the other foot for a second, Nicole, if you don't mind, because I've been asking about how we, uh, the outsiders looking into our neighbors in the Valley and in Penticton and Merritt and so on can be of assistance. What about though, if we've lost a pet, been misplaced, we've, you know, we had to go and, you know, Rover wasn't anywhere to be found and geez, we miss them. So are you getting a lot of that? We don't see a lot of that, although I belong to a ton of Facebook groups where I'm watching those posts come up. If anybody can take me by boat or take me by air to my property, I need to um, see if I can get my my animal. And more often than not, the stories have been positive, thank goodness, Mm -hmm. and they're retrieving their animals. I know I just looked at a post yesterday where they airlifted horses out. Uh, with this like fancy sling and it was really cool and so they rescued these horses for the family so. well that's great we, we talked to emergency operations up in Merritt this morning their uh, public relations guy and he was talking about that very thing nicole about people with pets now you have to you you have to go through a security check and if you have a creature that you did leave behind out of you, you couldn't find it when you had to go uh you, you can get a police escort back to your home to rescue your animal and immediately take it out of the area there are very few exceptions in terms of people being allowed into merit so far because of the health risk but if there are live animals concerned you can approach one of the police checkpoints outside the city and they will escort you to your location to to rescue your pet that's good news it is good news and i mean hats off to the rcmp because they are the ones that are taking care of the animals that weren't able to be retrieved from their owners yet or weren't able to be evacuated and so we do have stories or requests coming in information flowing about the number of cats and dogs that the rcmp are taking care of in merit and it's truly amazing because it is the difference between life and death yeah and, and it's interesting uh, every every cop shop likes a mascot a cat or a dog but when you got 20 mm-hmm. 20 or 30 it's well beyond the mascot stage isn't it and again hats Absolutely. off to them as well animal food bank one word animalfoodbank.org friends is the website that nicole represents and a good place to to start uh, in terms of finding out how you can contribute to the recovery effort now underway across bc nicole wilkes thanks for this keep up the good work please Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.